Well, we are in this series on the book of Revelation. This is the fourth message. Uh, the title is The Things That Are, the letter to Smyrna. We're in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. If you want to turn there in your Bible, Revelation is the last book in the Bible. So if you go all the way to the end and take a left, um, find chapter 2 of Revelation. The World Evangelical Fellowship's Religious Liberty Commission uh, and other sources have documented, documented a report that... Um, if you become an evangelical Christian in the country of Laos, which is, you know, the communist neighbor of Vietnam and Cambodia, you likely will be asked to sign a, a fill-in-the-blank form, and it's not a membership card uh, at your neighborhood church. It's not, it's like a church connect card. The form reads in part, I, blank, who live in blank, believe in a foreign religion, which the imperialists have used for their own benefit, to divide the united front and to build power for themselves against the local authorities. Now I and my family clearly see the intentions of the enemy and regret the deeds which we have committed. We have clearly seen the goodness of the party and the government. Therefore, I and my family voluntarily and unequivocally resign from believing in this foreign religion. So if you sign, you promise not to participate in this foreign Religion, Christianity in every reported case under punishment of law. And if you don't sign, here's what you can expect. You can expect humiliation, harassment, persecution, loss of employment, probable imprisonment, likely torture. Hundreds, if not thousands, of rural Christians reportedly have been forced to sign the form in public and then compelled to participate in pagan sacrifice. This experience of converts to Christianity in Laos has a lot in common with the experience of Christians in the city of Smyrna in the first century. Uh, The second on the mailing list for a letter from Jesus dictated to the Apostle John who was exiled for his faith in Christ to a little island in the Aegean Sea called Patmos. This is the As I mentioned earlier, the fourth in this series uh, through the book of Revelation. Last week, we studied the first of the seven letters to the seven churches, which was the letter to the church in Ephesus. Remember that that each of the seven churches is an actual church in first century Turkey, which at the time was known as the Roman province of Asia. So each was literal in existence. It's an actual church that actually existed. Uh, with real people, and uh, each one is for us spiritual in significance. There are lessons to be learned uh, that will help us to understand our own faith better and, and how to live in relationship to it. And each one, if we will take the time to engage in meaningful reflection, is practical in relevance. There are practical things to learn and apply. So this morning, I want to invite you to join me in considering what Jesus says to the second church on the Asian mailing route, the church in the city of Smyrna. Smyrna was a thriving port city of the Roman Empire. In fact, it was was one of the best known in the world. We've been using this map, and if you travel from Ephesus, where we were last week, to Smyrna, that's about a 35-mile drive. That's like maybe driving from here to, to Federal Way. Um, and when we arrived, 
in Smyrna, we would enter the city by what was known as the Ephesian Gate. Entering the city, uh, we would immediately be taken with its beauty, uh, its architecture, its roads, its flowers, its near-tropical climate. Uh, It's a place you might like to spend some time. It was referred to as the crown of the region, the ornament of all Asia. Smyrna is an ancient city, thought actually to be the oldest human settlement uh, in all of Turkey, having been founded as early as 3,000 years before Christ. And uh, that estimate uh, has been long-standing. It's recently been validated by archaeological uh, excavations just in the past two decades. And that would make ancient Smyrna a contemporary of a city like ancient Troy, uh, very, very old. From humble beginnings, the, the village grew into a stately city in the 7th century B.C., uh, featuring massive fortifications and blocks and blocks of two-storied homes, which would have been unusual uh, architecturally in those days. Smyrna was situated on the trade route to Rome, mentioned that earlier, at the mouth of the small river Hermas, uh, which flowed into a deep arm of the sea that that reached far inland, which afforded Smyrna a beautiful protected harbor, and it enabled Greek merchant ships to sail right not only to the coast, but into the very heart of the region. And if you and I were to board a ship in Smyrna and sail directly westward, uh, 188 miles, we would arrive in Athens, Greece. Uh, and from there, we would have access to the rest of Europe. And so the, uh, the merchant trade routes, even by sea, made Smyrna a very prosperous place. It became known also for its schools of medicine and science, its libraries, its religious temples and festivals, and its athletic games. The Romans uh, honored Smyrna by granting its application to construct a temple there in honor of the emperor Tiberius. The literature and the folklore of Smyrna uh, was filled with references to death and resurrection. And here's why, in at least one of the reasons why. In 600 BC, uh, there was a Lydian king, uh, Aliates, who came and sacked Smyrna, destroyed it, uh, leveled it really, and, and left it a, a very small, very impoverished village. And then nearly 300 years later, a guy named Alexander the Great came through uh, and uh, saw the potential of this city, had a dream to rebuild it, ordered it done. And that was when Smyrna became again one of the most spectacular cities of its day. First century citizens would say, we are the city that was once dead, but has now come to life. A city that was once dead, but has now come to life. Uh, today, Smyrna is the city of Izmir. It's the third largest city in Turkey after Istanbul and Ankara, uh, with a population of 3.1 million. And uh, surprisingly, Izmir still has a substantial Jewish community as well as a substantial Christian community. The name Smyrna means fragrant. And that name actually derives from one of its most valuable products, one of its most valuable exports. Long before there was doTERRA, there was myrrh. Myrrh, which happens to be a a gum resin derived from a shrub 
that was indigenous to that part of the world. Smyrna held the exclusive rights to the export and import of that very fragrant, very expensive at the time, spice. Large quantities of myrrh were exported to Egypt from Smyrna for use in embalming bodies, but it had other uses as well as an ingredient in costly incense, in perfumes, cosmetics, and in medicines. We hear myrrh mentioned frequently in the Bible. For example, in Exodus 30, uh, we're told that it was a key ingredient in the oil that was used for anointing the high priest and, and the other priests who served with him, first in the tabernacle and later in the temple. In the books of Psalms and Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, myrrh makes many appearances as an ingredient of perfumes, of love potions, uh, even air fresheners. Imagine that. Before there was Febreze, before there was Poof, there was myrrh. And of course, it was most famously uh, one of the gifts brought by the Magi for Jesus. Uh, You can read about that in Matthew chapter 2. In Mark 15, myrrh was uh, mixed with the wine that was offered to Jesus while he was suffering on the cross. In John 19, we read that Nicodemus brought myrrh and aloes to prepare the body of Jesus for burial. So, you know, I wonder, did, did the frankincense and myrrh uh, brought to Bethlehem by the Magi come from Smyrna? And was the myrrh used to prepare Jesus' body for burial also sourced from Smyrna? Probably so. Probably so. One more thing about myrrh. In order for the fragrance of myrrh to be released, it had to be crushed had to be crushed. And that really stands as a metaphor for the experience of the church in Smyrna, who were also being crushed beneath the iron heel of pagan Rome and the intense opposition of the Jewish community there. And yet in spite of that, in the words of H.A. Ironside, the church never gave out such sweet fragrance to God. The Apostle Paul wrote regarding the church, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. With that, let's stand together and let's read today's text aloud. Just four verses, Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is God's word. You may be seated. Just a reminder at the outset that by the angel of each of these seven churches, Jesus is probably referring to its pastor, and that's the way we're approaching it in our study. I mentioned last week that um, each of these letters follows a somewhat predictable pattern with just a few variations. Each letter 
begins with a brief description of the one speaking, who is the resurrected and glorified Jesus Christ. That's followed by commendation or affirmation of the church that begins with two words, I know. A commendation is followed by reproof on each occasion, um, but two. It's preceded by the phrase, but I have this against you, which is not something you ever want to hear from the Lord Jesus. Then comes instruction in which Jesus provides a corrective solution, or in two instances, direction for continued faithfulness. And to each church, finally, Jesus gives a promise of reward for those who conquer, for those who overcome. So description, commendation, reproof, instruction, and reward. In the Bible, Smyrna is mentioned only here in Revelation 1 to 2 and nowhere else. It's noteworthy to observe that Smyrna is one of the two churches to whom Jesus issues no reproof, uh, no rebuke. He never says to them, I have this against you. Uh, What a relief for them. What a distinction for them. We'll return to that briefly as we move along. First of all, then, Jesus begins this letter to the church in Smyrna with these words, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Just one chapter back in Revelation 1, as John first encounters the glorified Jesus Christ, we hear him saying to John, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Now consider what Jesus is saying. We first encounter this language in the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 44, where God says to Israel through the prophet, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. And again in chapter 48. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. And then at the close of this book of Revelation, we will again hear Jesus say, Chapter 21, verse 6, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So what is Jesus claiming about himself? When we take these scripture passages together, the implication is clear. He is claiming what actually the remainder of the New Testament tells us about Jesus, that he is not only the Lord of hosts, the King of Israel and the Redeemer, but he is also the creator of heaven and earth, co-equal in power and majesty to God the Father. So the union of his deity and his humanity are summed up in this title. He is the eternal transcendent one whose plans and purposes spanned the extremes of eternity. And at the same time, As the Christ, he is fully human. So think about this with me. If Christ, 
were only God, if Christ were only God, he would have been unable to die in the place of sinful humanity in order to offer the sacrifice for our sins that, that purchased our salvation. If he were only a man, the death he died would have had no eternal benefit for sinners. But because he died, he, the eternal one, died in his incarnate, his enfleshed humanity as the perfect sacrifice for sin. And because he was then raised from the dead to live forever by the power of his indestructible life, he alone uniquely possesses the authority to forgive sins, to grant eternal life to everyone who believes in him. So the doctrine of the incarnation is not just inconsequential theological theory. It's not just a hypothesis. On the contrary, it it forms the very foundation, the bedrock of our salvation and our eternal hope. In relation to time, then, Jesus is the eternal one. In relationship to life and death, he is the incarnate, crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, glorified one. So he qualifies in every way to be our Savior and our Lord. In verse 9, he continues with what he knows about the community of believers in Smyrna. And he says three things. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know that you're being slandered. Those three words provide us with a pretty clear picture of the daily experience of the Christians in first century Smyrna. They were experiencing tribulation. Verse 9, I know your tribulation. Other words used to describe their experience might include opposition or persecution, affliction, trouble, harassment, distress, and all because of one thing, and that is their faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. That word translated tribulation is in the Greek is thlipsis, a word that's never used to refer to only mild discomfort. Never used, for example, of a headache. It's, it's never used, for example, of, of a, a tummy ache or having to wear a mask during a pandemic. That's not what this refers to. It's the word that was used, for example, for pressing oil from olives. And it paints a picture of someone experiencing pressure so intense as to be unbearable, so great that they feel they'll be crushed by it. As I was thinking about the, the meaning of this word, I imagined being under the weight of an apartment building that collapsed with me inside of it. And under those heavy slabs of concrete. And it's the power of this word thlipsis is also illustrated by a practice in ancient times of extracting a, a confession, extracting information, from a prisoner by laying him horizontally on his back and then laying heavy stones on his chest. And then another, and then another, and then another, 
until he could no longer breathe. Sometimes the weight of those stones had the ultimate effect of crushing the unwilling witness to death. That's thlipsis. That's tribulation. Most often in Scripture, this word tribulation speaks primarily to outward pressures, but it's also used at times of intense inward emotional pressure that that just weighs down our spirits. Uh, Stresses and sorrows and disappointments that can rest so heavily on our hearts that we feel that we will be crushed by them. Well, what were the particular sources of tribulation for the Christians in Smyrna? We've already mentioned some of them. Like many of the cities in the Roman Empire, Smyrna honored Caesar with unquestioning loyalty. And one of the results of that loyalty, one of the practices that came from that, was that they became a free city with permission to govern themselves. Another was, again, I mentioned that the Roman Senate honored the city by accepting their bid over 11 other cities in Asia to construct a temple to the emperor Tiberius. So, so here, as in, as in Ephesus, imperial cult worship was prominent. Joe Stoll commented that perhaps nowhere was life for a Christian more perilous than in this city of zealous emperor worship. Once a year, each citizen of the city was required to burn incense on the altar to Caesar, after which he or she was issued a certificate verifying, verifying legally that they had been seen, officially seen, sacrificing to Caesar. It was probably considered more an expression of political loyalty than religious worship. And and all a citizen really had to do was to, to burn a pinch of incense and say for someone to hear out loud, Caesar is Lord. And yet most Christians refused to do that. And they serve, I think, as a model for us today and for what surely lies just ahead of us in this world. And it really gives context to what Paul said in Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it tells us that that confession of Jesus as Lord is not just an inward, silent, very personal, very intimate thing. It's a public acknowledgement, a public confession for all to see that we're following Jesus as Lord. Another source of pressure was the Jewish community in Smyrna. The the fact that the Christians worshipped Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the Son of God, resulted in intense harassment from the Jews. And as a result, three weights were laid on the chest, as it were, of the church in Smyrna. Uh, The first weight was poverty. I know your poverty, Jesus says, but you are rich. The refusal of the Christians of Smyrna to participate in emperor worship resulted, first of all, in economic sanctions. At first, their businesses may have been shunned, uh, in time actively boycotted, even vandalized. uh, And then they would have been expelled from the trade guilds, each of which had their own patron gods and goddesses. That would likely have led to an entire loss of employment. 
Christians were also being prevented from buying or selling in the marketplace. Some even faced confiscation of their homes and their possessions. So that that word translated poverty in verse 9 indicates not just a a reduction in income. They were not just below middle class or or even lower class. It, It actually means an entire loss of all economic resource. Abject poverty, destitution, homelessness to the point that they were often reduced to begging on the streets. And yet, and yet, in the midst of that severe economic pressure, Jesus reminded the church, somewhat parenthetically, but you are rich. If anyone else had said it, we might think it laughable. But he wanted them to remember and never forget that their spiritual riches far outweighed their material poverty. All they had was Jesus. And because of that, he wants them to remember and bear in mind that they are rich. Over and over again in Scripture, we're reminded of the scriptures or of the, of the riches that are ours in Christ. For example, in Romans 2.4, Paul wrote about the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. In Romans 9.23, the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. In Ephesians 1.18, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Ephesians 2.7, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 1.27, Paul spoke of the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In Colossians 2.2, the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, assuring them, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And he said to the Corinthians that true ministers of God would be as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. The second weight that the Christians in Smyrna faced was slander. Slander. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. We use the English Standard Version here at LifePoint. If you have another translation, yours may have the word blasphemy in that place. Both of those words mean that they were spoken against. They were verbally assaulted. They were verbally abused. They were falsely accused. Under Roman rule, the Jews were given a pass. When it came to the worship of the emperor, they worshipped one God. But they were everywhere. The Jews were everywhere, in every city, in every village. And what the Romans wanted most in the empire was peace. As long as the Jews didn't threaten the peace of Rome, they were exempted from sacrificing to Caesar. They were given freedom to practice their own religion. And for a while, uh, the Jews who recognized Jesus as their Messiah continued to worship in the synagogues, So the Romans viewed the Christians as 
merely a sect or a subset of Judaism. So they too were largely left alone. But when opposition began to increase from the Jews toward the Christians, the Jews who would not, did not accept Jesus as Messiah, then the Christ followers were finally rejected. They were kicked out of the synagogues. Uh, The Jewish establishment then began to actively engage in slandering them, blaspheming them. It's not hard to imagine that some Jewish believers in Jesus under these withering verbal assaults from their families, their friends, their neighbors, may have begun to question their own faith and to second-guess their decision to follow Jesus. It, It only stands to reason that that might be so. In this letter to the church in Smyrna, Jesus reassured the believers that that those who were abusing them claimed to be Jews, but they were actually not Jews at all. They were apostate Jews. They were pseudo-Jews, fake Jews. And the Jews who accepted Jesus as Messiah were, in fact, the real deal. They were actually the ones who were inheriting the true fulfillment of Judaism. Paul wrote to the Roman Christians, for example, Romans 2, 28 to 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. I want to be quick to point out that that term synagogue of Satan Uh, should never be indiscriminately applied to every Jewish synagogue anywhere and everywhere. Uh, But apparently, the synagogue there in Smyrna in the first century slandered and persecuted the Messianic Jews and Gentile Christians in that city. And the Lord Jesus himself declared them to be fake Jews. There's some indication, and it's perhaps not surprising, that it was in Smyrna, that the symbol of the fish by which early Christians secretly identified themselves to each other had its origin. By the way, if, if, if you're a crazy driver, please don't put one of these on the back of your car. <laughs> you might know that the, the first letters in the Greek alphabet of each word in the phrase Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, formed a kind of acrostic and uh, they were the letters that formed the word ichthus, which was the word for fish. And um, so if if two people were talking, for example, in, in one sense that the other might be a believer, he might just take his foot and, and draw an arc in the sand, very casually, very quietly. And if the other was also a Christian and happened to notice what the first one had just done, he might complete that fish symbol with his foot. Having completed the communication, then they would quickly rub it out again. The third heavy weight of tribulation on the Christ followers in Smyrna was the prospect of imprisonment and death. Do not fear, Jesus says, what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have Tribulation. And as you read this, you might say, well, as if they hadn't suffered enough already. 
Here Jesus is announcing more and even more consequential suffering that, that lay just ahead. Notice with me who will be behind this intensified persecution. It's the devil. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison. Satan himself. Notice the purpose though. See, God always has a purpose in everything he allows. And in this, this case, it's testing. Testing what? Testing the authenticity. Testing the genuineness of their faith. James wrote to his fellow Jewish Christian brothers and sisters, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Apostle Peter added, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Persecution, Jesus said, was going to last 10 days. Most Biblical scholars take those 10 days as a a symbolic representation of a specific period of time. What they can't seem to agree upon, apparently, is whether it's a short time or a long time. The fact is that what is meant by 10 days isn't clear. H.A. Ironside suggested that these 10 days may point to 10 distinct edicts from 10 different emperors over a period of 250 years, beginning with Nero in the first century and concluding with Diocletian in the third. Directing the governors of the various provinces to seek out Christians and either imprison them or put them to death. In the first century, Roman world prison was usually the prelude to trial and execution. Death was a distinct prospect for the believers in Smyrna. An example of that is one well-known resident of Smyrna, a man named Polycarp, who became the bishop of Smyrna during the second century A.D. As a child, he had come to faith in Christ through the ministry of the Apostle John, and he became one of John's disciples. And in that way, he became a vital link between the apostolic era of the first century and the expansion of the church in the second. Later in life, Polycarp wrote about sitting at the feet of John and and hearing firsthand stories of the the life of Jesus. Uh, During the persecution which happened under the emperor Hadrian, who came to power in 118 AD, Polycarp, at the ripe old age of 86, you imagine 86, he, he was specially chosen for arrest because of his widespread influence, his prominence, and his fearless preaching of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Uh, He wouldn't give up and he wouldn't shut up. Three days before his arrest, while he was praying, he had a vision 
of the pillow under his head bursting into flames. And he told his friends who were with him, I am going to be burned alive. When he appeared before the proconsul, he was commanded to curse Jesus or to face death. And he famously replied, 80 and six years I've served him. He's done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Bring it on. As he went to his death, he's said to have prayed, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. Tradition says that when Polycarp was burned at the stake, a, a wind came up that blew the flames away from his body as he stood there. So the executioner was given the directive to kill him with a dagger. So don't miss this. Jesus didn't say to the faithful in Smyrna, don't worry, be happy. He didn't say, don't worry, I'll protect you from suffering. He didn't say, oh, it's okay, I won't let them harm you. He notably didn't say, you can live your best life now. Instead, he said, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The New Testament speaks to several different crowns that God will give to those who overcome. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25, it's the imperishable crown. In 1 Thessalonians 2, it's the crown of rejoicing. In 2 Timothy 4, the crown of righteousness. In 1 Peter 5, the crown of glory. And in James 1, and here in Revelation 2, it's the crown of life. What is? What is the crown of life? It's the gift of life itself. Abundant and eternal for all who believe. Verse 11 concludes the letter to Smyrna with these words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We saw last week that what it means to overcome, what it means to conquer, is to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. The promise is that the one who believes in Jesus and who perseveres in that faith even unto death will not be hurt by the second death. So what is the second death? For the answer to that question, we have to look forward almost to the end of the book and 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 the final judgment, Revelation 20, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What can we conclude as we come to the close of this letter to the church in Smyrna? Well, there's... A lot here we could talk about. And I hope you'll do exactly that in your life group this week or in another group 
our, our life group this week enjoyed just a, a rich discussion. But let me suggest a, just a few applications and then we're done. The first is this. Jesus knows every detail of your circumstances. He knows because he sees. He is El Roi, the God who sees, but he is he also knows because he's lived in our skin. He knows what it, it's like to be human. The writer of Hebrews told us, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You mean he, he understands my frailties? Yep. You mean he understands my temptations? Yep. Really? All of them? Even those ones I don't like to talk about? Yep. All of them. So you know, no matter what temptation you are under today, no matter what you are suffering, whatever sacrifices you're making for the sake of his name, he sees you. Uh, He knows. He empathizes. He feels you. And you can talk with him about it. And when you do, you'll find that he's not surprised. He already knows. But he hears. He sympathizes. In fact, he's praying for you right now, the Bible tells us, interceding with the Father for you personally by name. Second, when when the weight of tribulation increases and the pain intensifies in our suffering for the sake of the name of Jesus, we have no reason to fear. We have no reason to flee. We can say with Polycarp, bring it on. And it certainly seems as if his coming is near, doesn't it? And because of that, we might, we actually should, I think, anticipate that opposition may increase. Persecution may come. Millions of our brothers and sisters around the world are suffering today, this very day, because of their love for Jesus, their confession of him as Savior and Lord, their unrelenting faith in him. They won't give up and they won't shut up. And we are foolish here in the United States to think we might never be touched by that kind of persecution and suffering. But he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Understand this morning that he... He knows you. He knows the issues of your life. He sees every tear. He hears every sigh, every groan. He knows. Finally, there's a question hanging in the air that deserves our attention. And it's there in verse 11. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him hear what the Spirit is saying today. Do you have an ear? Are you listening? Do you hear? Are you like those whom the prophet Isaiah describes as hearing, but never understanding, seeing, but never perceiving? Are you responsive to what the Spirit is saying to you today? Is your name written in the book of life? Do you have the confidence today? Would you be able to say with confidence that the Lord Jesus himself will one day place the crown of life on your head? And the answers come down to the question of whether you've ever genuinely believed in Jesus. Oh, I know it sounds foolish. But have you ever genuinely believed in Jesus? Have you ever genuinely rested your faith firmly in the one who is the first and the last, who who died on a Roman cross bearing your sin, who rose again from the dead and is now alive forever? I invite you today to settle that matter. The Bible says today is the appointed hour. Today is the day of salvation. And the word hour there is, is a reference to time. And it, it's, it's, it's time that's not like chronological time that just keeps going, but it's a, a window of time, a window of opportunity that, that opened at a point in time and will close again. When God says. So today, that window is still open, that window of opportunity to trust in Christ. And uh, I, I invite you, I urge you to settle that matter. And if you'd like to talk with someone, pray with someone, uh, there will be someone right here at the front after we close uh, who would love to do that with you, pray with you, listen to you, cry with you if necessary. Let's pray together now. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have promised to never leave us or forsake us. Thank you that there is nothing that man can do to us of an eternal nature. Our salvation cannot be taken by man from us because you have given it. Your word is sure. Your word is true. Your word will never be revoked. So thank you that as we trust in Christ, we can believe the promise that whoever believes in him will receive the gift of eternal life. And we pray this in his name. Amen.